Let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to read verses 1 through 12. I trust everybody has a copy of the sermon notes. So you'll need that to kind of go along as we hope to unpack verses 9 to 12 today. Hebrews chapter 6. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 12. The word of the Lord says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of the resurrection, and of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, And the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to rescue them again unto repentance. Seeing or since they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth the herbs met for them by whom it is dressed receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars rejected and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany or include salvation. Though we thus speak, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. That ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Just prior to the sermon, we sung from how firm a foundation these words and one of the brethren during the break were expressing uh, what, a, what a blessing it was to his soul. The words that says, The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That is talking about the doctrine of assurance. The Christian's Assurance, And there is no other doctrine 
in all of theology, in my humble opinion, that has more influence upon the joy, upon the certainty, upon the productivity of a Christian's life than this doctrine of assurance. When I think about the doctrine of assurance, I've come to learn that the doctrine of assurance doesn't fit nicely and neatly into our Western lawyer mindset. The doctrine of assurance does biblically have within it a little bit of tension. And now, you have to be comfortable with that because there are portions of Scripture, true biblical theology, that doesn't have clean corners and yours and mine's little minds have every jot and tingle figured out and it fits nicely into our categories and so now we can go about our merry way. I've come to learn that the doctrine of assurance is this way. I view, and I think rightly so, biblically, the doctrine of assurance is as if it were a puzzle. I like to think about it that way. And each piece, when it's put into its place, is going to show us, some of you are going to charge me breaking the second commandment, but work on my illustration here. It shows us the beautiful face of Christ, okay, when it's put together. Namely, as we just sung in the song, our foundation is Christ, Christ alone. And this is definitely what the writer of Hebrews has been preaching. This is what he's been pointing to. And really, what lies under the surface is the foundation of his warning in chapter 6 and indeed throughout all of the book of Hebrews. And so we need to recognize that the doctrine of assurance, of course, it points us to Christ and Christ alone, but it does have pieces and elements and parts to it that give us that full-orbed, biblical, balanced understanding of assurance. And this is what we're going to see today in the letter to the Hebrews chapter 6, just after the severest warning passage of all the New Testament. We're going to be taught, shown, described a piece of the puzzle, of the doctrine of having full assurance. Now, it's going to challenge you a little bit. Um, It's going to perhaps push you in a direction that your entire Christian upbringing has not cultivated in your thinking about the doctrine of assurance. Because let's just be honest, all all of us in here come from one of three major views of Christian assurance. You have the Wesleyan view. Young ones you may have remembered last week, we talked about a, um, a way of viewing justification, how one's saved and how one's preserved in salvation. It's called Arminianism. There is the Arminian view, which is kind of like a daisy flower. You've got a cute little girl, you know. He loves me today, he loves me not. And she's picking off the flowers. And they view God's love and their assurance that way. And then there's a second category of people that view assurance, and I think most of us come from this one, that if we ever have one remote doubt about our assurance, we're immediately challenged as if we're sinning against God. Oh, that doubt's a sin against God. Don't you know what 1 John says? You know, ye who have the sons have, right? You possess eternal life. You cast that that doubt aside and you you march on victory and the power of the Spirit and and don't you ever doubt your salvation. Well, that's the second category. 
But then there's the third category, which teaches it's not that clean and cut and crisp. No, it's really not. Um, it does rest upon Christ alone, and, and it is His sovereign work. Yes, indeed it is. But it actually, your assurance involves you and your work of labor, of love. Ouch! Already don't want to get to verse 10 today, do we? You see, the old paths that we were talking about in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, the old puritanical the old English particular Baptist paths biblically taught that assurance isn't the essence of faith. In other words, you're converted, you truly come to the cross of Christ, you lay, you cast your burdens down there, they're covered under the blood of Christ. You don't, and you ought not to expect the token of complete assurance to put in your pocket and know that you should never have doubts about your salvation. That's not how the Bible teaches the doctrine of assurance. Now, before we just launch in to today's text with that introduction, let's pause and let's appreciate for a moment the stream, the current, the flow of this sermon letter that we've been going through. Chapter 1, you remember, he exalted the eternal Son as God, right? Chapter 2, he interweaves how that as the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, he himself by himself secured the redemption according to the eternal decree of the Father, namely the redemption of sinners, his people. Right? And then in chapter 3, he begins with some warning passages. Don't neglect so great a salvation. Don't depart from this salvation. That it's the eternally begotten, condescended God-man, the Messiah, who has died for you and who has paid your sins. Don't you neglect so great a salvation. Remember that? And then he's kind of going in this sermon. And what's he doing, beloved, in this sermon? He's pointing to the work of the Messiah, isn't he? He's pointing these Jews who have been converted, just like we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, the priests who were former priests of the Old Covenant, who are now obedient to the faith. He's pointing these Jews, who in like way were in the Old Covenant, who are now professing that they're obedient to the faith, they believe the faith of the gospel of the New Covenant in Jesus Christ, yet they accept His uh, work upon the cross for the propitiation, the forgiveness of all their sins. He's pointing them to all that. And then what's He do when He gets to chapter 6? It's as if in this sermon, if you were in the, the crowd and you didn't have a copy of the sermon notes, you'd be like, where is He going? Chapter 6, He stopped. And He gave this very severe warning that if you dare think about going back And laying again the foundations, I believe we successfully demonstrated in verses 1 and 2, what he's talking about there is blending or mixing the old covenant distinctives with the new covenant realities. That is the gospel. If you dare think about adding your works, your works of righteousness, your obedience to the law, to the finished work that I've been describing to you in this sermon of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will lead to your eternal destruction. And even though you pretend to have tasted, sampled the gospel, partaking of the Holy Spirit, witnessing the miracles, agreeing with the miracles, 
You're starting to entertain ideas of how in some way can we include ceremonial washings of the Old Testament still in these new covenant realities. Is there any way we could fit in the sacrifice of animals still, the laying on of hands, the imputation of our sins in connection with this idea of Jesus as the Messiah? And he said, you do this, your end is to be burned. And then he talks about assurance of salvation. (laughs) He's preaching Christ. He gets to chapter 6. He warns them, never, ever think you can pervert, pollute this glorious gospel. And there is now only one way to do what I have been encouraging you to do during this entire sequence of the letter. Preserve, maintain your profession of this glorious gospel unto the end. The only way you're going to do that is to pursue with all diligence, verses 10 and 11, full assurance. You and I will not persevere, hold on to Isaac, confess, like Jeremiah, in hostile environments, whether it's family, whether it's co-workers, we will not stand up to the influence of darkness against the true gospel if we don't have full assurance. You won't make it to the end. Some of the most miserable people, some of the most slothful Christians, out of the majority of those who quote-unquote deconstruct is the popular phrase now, or fall away, every single one of them never pursued full assurance and lacked it as it originates and begins with chapters 1 through 5, the gospel of Christ and their duties of what they do with this glorious gift that they've been given in Christ. Oh, Pastor Doug, I don't like it when you talk about duties. I don't like it when you talk about Christian obligation or responsibility. But I am not going to remove the teachings of God's Word to fit nicely within your systematic theology and to fit nicely with your coddled comfortability. Because I don't do it to myself. When I got to verse 10, I said, oh my goodness, this scares the living daylights out of me. I must ascertain what does it mean. Thereby I can pursue, I can grow unto full assurance to equip me and help me and help you unto the end. So when you're called today to pursue full assurance, beloved, don't walk out of here downcasted. Uh, Don't walk out of here defeated. You're going to see today that it is, just like as we read in the first century church in Acts 6, it is the power of God working in you that will continue to operate within you and it will manifest itself with glorious fruits in your life. So, so much for introduction. Let's get into the Word. How are we going to unpack verses 9 through 12? Well, you have your sermon notes. I want to consider verse 9, first of all, under the heading, Speaking Truth with Love. And I'll hope to show you how this connects with pursuing full assurance in the application of this verse. Speaking truth in love. So he, he, he gets done with this 
sober warning. And as Charles Spurgeon says, we get the blessed but. There's many of them in the Bibles, but we got the blessed but here. But, beloved, we are persuaded. Modern translations have convinced, good translation. We are convinced better things of you and things that accompany, so many translations, good translations say including salvation. Though we thus speak, though we thus speak this way. No, first of all here, this reoccurring term of endearment to his original audience. You remember back in chapter 3, verse 1, he called them holy brethren. But throughout this epistle, he's acknowledging them, he's giving them the benefit of the doubt, and he's speaking to them as though he thinks highly of them. In other words, this inspired writer is not coming in like a bull in a china shop with an axe to grind with truth, the harsh truth that he just gave. No, no, no. He calls them literally loved ones. I'm convinced better things of you. What do you mean better things? I'm convinced, dear loved ones, that you are in contrast of what is described of those in verses 4 through 8. Really verses 1 through 8. I'm convinced of that. Now we have to recognize and we have to acknowledge that either by word of mouth or through a letter in the ancient times, this inspired writer who loves this church had received some sort of awareness of them wanting to lay again these foundations. And thus, that's why there's this focus upon the person of Christ and the work of Christ, which carries out all throughout this letter. And also, in addition to that, there's also a parallel theme, always laid hold to this profession and the confession of this gospel, right? So there had to have been, he had to have been made aware of somebody getting off track with the reality of the person and the work of Christ as it's manifested and declared in the New Covenant Gospel, all right? But he says, beloved, loved ones, I think better things of you. You're not those who have only sampled the gospel. No, you've confessed it. A little speculation here when I was with you. Uh, when I delivered, perhaps he's the one that personally delivered it to them. But we know from chapter 3 and other places that they acknowledge, Sister Mary, that they, they believed in the gospel. And he says, I'm convinced better things of you that you didn't just sample it. No, you confessed it, you meant it, and you're going to stick to it. I'm convinced that, you know, uh, you, it was a true salvific partaking of the Holy Ghost. You remember we exegeted verses 4 through 6? And it didn't necessitate it talking about a genuine believer. But he's saying to them, I think you really are genuine believers. I truly believe these things of you. Though I have spoken the way I've spoken. Well, don't you stop and don't you think for a moment. If you really were convinced and persuaded that about me, (laughs) well then why did you speak that way in the first place? I'm persuaded, I'm convinced you're really Christians. Even though I just spoke to you and gave you one of the most harshest warnings that if you ever tampered with the gospel, you're going to be burned, using Deuteronomy 11. Beloved, he did this because love, gospel love, it speaks the truth. It always speaks the truth. He was made aware somehow or another that someone 
is becoming confused with tampering with the purity of the person and the work of Christ and understanding how they are justified. And then he speaks to the whole truth, doesn't have an axe to grind with a single person, not trying to cause a lot of drama. He just proclaims the truth and then gives the warning, right? And then he follows up and he says, but I think better things of you. He's really practicing what we see all over the Bible, and that is love speaks truth, speaking truth in love. Look at your sermon notes. Proverbs 21.6 teaches us faithful, faithful, lovingly are the words, I'm sorry, are the wounds, not the words, the actual wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. It's funny, we were driving through Knightstown yesterday, and there's this church. 190 years it's been a pillar in the town of Knightstown. And they had a sign, and it said, Dinner and the Bible, Friday nights at 6 p.m. We're there, it's Friday. No, I'm wrong. It was Yesterday was Saturday, what am I saying? Uh, it was, <laughs> all right, I'm butchering the illustration here, but it just come to mind. Work with me. It uh, said dinner and the Bible, uh, Friday, 6 p.m. And so I looked at Justin and I go, hey, a free dinner and talking about the Bible with other Christians. How can we pass this up? And then I'm joking and I told her, now, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to tell whoever's teaching the Bible, hey, listen, dear brother, we're here and we want solid meat. We want the dinner, and we're not here for entertainment. We want you to get down and just tell us what we need to hear, right? What am I saying? And I was joking because she looked at me and she goes, cut it out. You don't always have to be like that, you know. And of course, I was just razzing a little bit. But the point is, is I want that, whoever that person is going to be the minister, I, I suppose, I want him to what? Love me in the truth. I want him to declare God's word, Jeremiah chapter 6, even though it's hard to receive, but I want him to tell me the truth. And in so much in doing so, I would see, even though he's wounded me with the truth of God's word, it's not him, it's God's word that's doing it. He's faithful. That man's faithful. I appreciate it. Look at Ephesians 4.15, carrying this idea of what this inspired author was doing by speaking to them in truth and love speaking the truth in love, and here's the result, that we may grow up in Him, that is, the Lord, in all things, which is the head, even Christ. The reason that the inspired author gave such a serious warning, because he was made aware, he had some knowledge, that there were some people becoming infused with the purity of the gospel, and therefore, in helping them mature to grow up, that's what verse 1 says, stop laying again the foundations, go on to maturity, I have to tell you the truth. And then, of course, he's doing exactly what the inspired Apostle John says in 1777. He's sanctifying them through the truth. He understands that the Word is the truth. He wants to set them apart, Fraser. He wants to take them and what? Protect them out from those, if they want to go on their merry way, if they want to begin to invent, and many did in the first century, a different understanding about the person of Christ. You remember that they did. Many denied his divinity. If they want to deny his resurrection and still try to wear the Christian t-shirt, you let them go ahead, but I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to separate you with the truth. 
So what's the application that we see here under our first heading of speaking truth and love connected with our pursuing full assurance, which really is the thrust of verses 9 through 12. The main thrust is the title of the sermon, Pursuing Full Assurance. Well, I come up with three, I think, applications that are importantly involved in pursuing full assurance of the hope unto the end. The first one is purposeful positioning. Purposeful positioning. Beloved, we ought to place ourselves around mature Christian men and women who we know love us. Why do we know they love us? Because they speak the truth of God's word to us. We should purposefully position ourselves around godly men and women who we know love us because they speak the truth to us. Easiest application I'm reaching for here, illustration, is in a family. The children, I know, I used to be your age. Um, There is a tendency when your mother and your father, older brother, older sister, or younger sibling to an older one, brings the truth of God's word to bear upon a relational issue or a decision in the home or what have you. If it's faithful to the word of God, if it's connected to a true handling of a principle in the word of God, give it ear. Don't just outright reject it because it doesn't, it's not going or heading in the direction that you've already determined in your mind it's going, that you want to go. We need to position ourselves around such people who take their responsibility to us as brothers and sisters seriously. Uh, Brother Grizz, I pick on you because you're always in the front row up here, but you know, you're not loving me, brother, if you see me thinking, speaking, or acting in an open way contrary to the Word of God and you don't come to me and grab a cup of coffee and sit down with me, are you? No. Grizz is not going to help me unto the full assurance of the hope if he's allowing me to be deceived in my thinking or in my conduct. This wisdom of God's Word is wonderfully described for us in Proverbs 13.20. Perhaps you know this verse well. The man that walks with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. I want to be, I want to position myself purposefully in a covenant community of a church where people love me with the truth. They're gracious with how, you know, they handle that truth, but yet they love me and they're willing to speak to me about the truth. But another way to apply this aspect of speaking the truth and love connected with our full pursuing assurance, we also ought to give prayerful preparation. Prayerful prayerful preparation. Too many P's this morning. Prayerful preparation. And basically what I mean here is we ought to be prayerfully asking the Spirit of God, Luke 11.13, to come and to prepare our hearts to receive that truth whenever it's spoken to us. Or in other words, we are to prayerfully prepare our hearts, ask God to give us spiritual, here it is, catchphrase, Thick skin. Put ourselves purposeful in a context where people will speak the truth and then say, Lord, help me to receive that truth. Lord, help me to have some thick skin. We live in a culture of the thinnest skinned people that are the quickest to be offended and the slowest to forgive and to get over things. And you know where you will find those people sadly the most? 
in the visible, confessing Christian community. And that's why a lot of pastors, hirelings, not true faithful men of God, they walk on eggshells in the pulpit. They don't want to speak the truth in love because the members in the church have not prayerfully prepared their hearts to come to the house of God on the most sacred day of the week to say, O Lord, reveal Yourself to me through the man of God with truth, no matter if it cuts me and wounds me, insomuch as He demonstrates from the Word of God, I know it's for my good. Give me, I pray, spiritual thick skin. Give me calluses on my hands. So when the truth of God's Word is delivered into my hands, I'll take it. I'll use it and I'll apply it even though it cuts me to the bone. Give me spiritually thick skin. Because you know what? The Word of God, it will wound us. It will wound us. This inspired writer who's writing to the Hebrews here, he goes on in Hebrews 12.11, look in your sermon notes, and he acknowledges this. In a way, he's in a sense telling them, prepare yourself to have some thick skin because, quote, all discipline, all harsh things, they're not coming from him, they're coming from the truth of God's word is the context here. All discipline for the moment, it does what? It doesn't seem joyful, but it seems what? Sorrowful. Yet, oh, the, there's, how can we do this? There's the blessed butts. And there's the, I'm struggling here. There's the Yahoo yes, I don't know. There's, there's, the, there's the yet here. Yet to those who have been trained by it. In the Greek, this training, this discipling. You mean the truth of God's Word when it wounds me? When my mom and when my dad, when my wife... When my fellow brother in the church opens up the Word of God and walks with me, demonstrates in the Word of God, not judgmentally, but lovingly, patiently with me, it exercises me. We look at the discipline sometimes of God's Word as that treadmill in the corner of our office buildings or in our house that's used as a coat hanger now. Like it looks, We see it and, oh, I don't want to get on that. I know I need to get on that. But man, I, I just don't. I know what it's going to do to me. Well, last thirty seconds on that thing. But look at your sermon notes, Hebrews twelve eleven. Afterwards, it yields. It yields. It provides the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This has everything to do with pursuing full assurance, doesn't it? Positioning yourself around people who will speak the truth prayerfully preparing, ask God to help you receive the truth. But also there's a practical application to this as well. Speaking the truth in love. And that is encouraging, praying for, and supporting those in your life who love you enough to share you, share with you God's Word. You don't give them the cold shoulder. If you perceive right, sometimes we come into Christian communities and Christian relationships and we see there's a brother, he's like really strong in the Word, Right? Oh wow, man! I, I want to stay away. From, I want to keep my distance from that guy, because you know he may begin to bring to bear something in my life I don't want exposed. So I'm going to hang out over here on this side of the church. Now, brothers, don't shoot me after church about this. I'm going to hang out over here on this side of the church and talk about fishing, hunting, and football. 
But that brother over there, I ain't getting caught alone with him. And if I see him in the bathroom, it's just me and him. I'm going to keep my head down, my mouth quiet. I don't want to start talking about the Word of God in any way. I, oh, and I hope he doesn't ask me how the Lord has been speaking or dealing with me this week in His Word. Right? Don't, be, don't treat those in the church, in your life, in your family, who love you in the truth. Galatians 6.1 I'm predicating all this that they're doing it the right way. They're not thumping you over the head with the Bible, even though some of us, especially men, need thumped over the head with the Bible. But you get the point here. right? They're doing it the right way. Don't give them the cold shoulder. Now, men in the church, who's oftentimes the one in our lives who will put that sweet, manicured, gentle finger right on the button in our lives that needs to be pressed called this is the truth about your thinking and what you're doing. And what do we do sometimes as men? We give the cold shoulder. Usually the cold shoulder comes in a silent treatment. Right? And we don't want to allow that truth to speak to us. Now ladies, same thing. Same thing. Instead of the calloused big finger or thumb of the husband speaking that button of truth in your life, see it as the gentle angel face Stephen, you know, truth hidden. And men, we need to see our wives' gentle fingers, the big iron thumb that we need to listen to. Well, we know as you see in your scriptures, uh, citations in Proverbs 17.17 under this last application of supporting those, encouraging those to speak to us, that a friend loves at all times, and they're there for us at times of adversity. And blessed be God for the people that exhibit the sort of character trait that the inspired writer has been exhibiting up until this point, in and until verse 9, where he says, I've spoken the truth to you in love, because, beloved, loved ones, I'm convinced of better things than you. Now, prior to moving on to verse 10, and to our second heading, we gather from verse 9 that this inspired author, he loves this church, loved ones he calls them, enough to be brutally, uh, brutally. <laughs> that's, that's the, see, you don't understand, sometimes in the pulpit we create grammar, New English words. That's the word brutal and beautifully mixed together. I think there was a cartoon character who used to speak that way, right guys? I don't know. But, he, he loved them enough to be brutally honest with them concerning what must have been some confusion or temptation of not keeping the purity of Christ's gospel from being distinctively separate from the Old Covenant. He loved them enough. However, as we also see in verse 9, the writer's convinced that they would demonstrate that they were not those who would end up in a state of abandoning the true gospel of the Messiah. And we learn now that his conviction, his persuasion regarding them, it's not based on his subjective opinion of them, but rather we see in verse 10, it's objectively based upon God's remembering what? Their works. And this takes us to our second heading, working in love. Working in love. Verse 10 says, Why are you so persuaded? Well, we see... For God is not unrighteous or unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you 
have showed toward His name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now, on the surface, this text does seem to very simply be teaching that the reason the writer is certain and convinced that they are really converted is predicated upon the fact that God will remember their works. Right? The things that they have done and are doing. And upon such an initial surface reading of the text, we all immediately are struck with dread and fear. Because if the basis of the certainty of our salvation, our justification, which we hope never to result in being burned, like those described in verses 1-8, through is built upon things that we have done, even in love, toward the name and for the glory of God, there is not one of us in here that stands a chance of making it to the end. On the surface reading, when you read that and you allow an honest examination of your heart, you have not loved God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, and and might this past week, probably even yet this morning. Now, I'm not wanting to foist anything on Brother Hamaker, but when he had that blowout on the side of the road and he was fixing that tire, maybe he's a better, maybe he's more sanctified than me, but I I don't know if he was (laughs) in his frustration and bloody knuckled hands fixing it. You know, just doing it with receiving it with all joy, quoting Romans 8 28 through 30. I don't know, or you know, you know, you get the point. On the surface, here we read this, and it seems as though it is very plainly teaching that because God is just to look at what you do, He would be unjust to not observe and give you credit and take into account the works that you've done for His name. And so therefore, I'm certain because you do those things and the justice of God that you will not end up in the end of destruction. Now, do you recall that verses 4 and 5 on the surface seem to describe a genuine believer when we just read it straight through? You recall that on the surface? But then when we looked and we contemplated what the words meant, when we looked and we did what all good Protestants are to do, we let Scripture interpret Scripture, we discovered, lo and behold, there was just a little bit of spade work that needed to be done in Scripture, and it doesn't on the surface mean what it says. And so now I want to present to you and ask you to join me in doing a little bit of biblical spade work to see our silly surface reading of this is not the proper interpretation. And it helps wonderfully us all in pursuing a full assurance of the hope that greatly influences our Christian life. So, let's roll up our sleeves here and begin, first of all, to remove this sloppy surface interpretation that somehow we have a covenant interest in the salvation of Christ based upon our work, even though it's done in the labor of love toward God. Now, we could go to a lot of places, but I'm limited in time. And I want to give you at least one verse that I think succinctly clarifies that our justification, our salvation, which the inspired author of Hebrews is looking at and is guaranteed they possess, 
is in no way, shape, or form connected to our righteousness, our works, even when they're done in a labor of love toward the Lord and His people. Look in your sermon notes at Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, where the inspired Apostle Paul isn't preaching another gospel. The inspired Apostle Paul isn't preaching another doctrine of assurance. He, inspired by the Spirit, writes, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It is not by the works which any of us have done but it's by the mere mercy and grace of God. You don't have it in your sermon notes, but Galatians 2.16 is another very clear, succinct statement that ought to remove off the table any kind of interpretation that he is certain about their position with the Lord based on their works and God remembering their works and crediting that under their righteousness and why they will make it to the end. Galatians 2.16, hear the witness from God's Word where it says, Man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That's, I believe, a very good witness from the Scriptures because underlining all of what they're wrestling with is an entertaining of this idea. Can we still somehow go back to laying again the foundations of how we're justified? No, no, no. You can't. Whether you like it or not, O prideful man, it is but by the mercy and grace of God. Therefore, be quiet. Hush your lips. Be still. Isn't it interesting how sometimes people, they hear the gospel in its simplicity. How that Christ, after paying the ransom upon the cross for their sins that they could never pay, how He rose from the dead and the Father being satisfied with His ransom, declared Him, declared Him His Son, and how Jesus declared it is finished, and how the Scriptures testify that He's sitting at the right hand of His Father. They're at rest. The triune God is at rest with the work of Christ. But oftentimes, men and women hear the simplicity and the beauty of the Gospel, and they think to themselves, yeah, but I need to do a little bit more things here at church and then I'll feel assured. I need to get this area of my life worked out and then I'll feel that I'm really forgiven and I really belong to Christ. You see, they, they, they want to muddle it. They want to, they want to complicate it. They want to somehow or another connect their justification, their acceptance before the Almighty God. This sinful man, this sinful woman, sinful boy and girl, They want to connect somehow or another something that they do to the finished work of Christ. And again and again, repeated over and over, search the Scriptures if you may. You will get red in the face. You will grow weary in trying. You will never ever attach to the Gospel your works, even when they're done in God's name. We're justified by faith and faith alone. 
Well then, if that is not the right interpretation, this surface understanding of this verse, what's the right interpretation? The answer begins with another passage in Scripture, allowing Scripture to help us interpret Scripture. That not only, again, clearly teaches that we are saved by the mercy and the grace of God alone, but it also gives us another insight of what's going on here in verses 9 through 12. And as you see in your sermon notes, it comes from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. So follow with me in my line of thinking here. I should say the Scripture's line of thinking. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Articulating how one is saved and for the purpose of which they are saved. Notice what it says. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay, that supports Titus 3, 4 through 5, Galatians 2, 16, right? It's just another text we could go to to remove that sloppy understanding that on the surface our our works contributes in any way to our standing before the Lord. But notice what else it says in verse 10. Look at your sermon notes. For we've been saved by grace through faith, not of our works. Why? Why? For, there's there's that connection, We are His workmanship. Now that word workmanship is God's creation, God's crafting, God's making. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, say it together, unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Now this is interesting because the free grace of God that I contribute no merit to that is not connected to my works whatsoever and why I will stand completely accepted and justified by God I see now in His eternal redemptive plan for that salvation that He will gift me for is that He will use me to do good works unto and for His name that He has prepared me for. Okay, now we're kind of here in verse 10 and we're seeing that He's he's laying before us that somehow or another in this jigsaw puzzle we call the doctrine of assurance and He's telling us to pursue. We're seeing, are we not, that works is in some way, whether or not it rubs against us the wrong way, connected to assurance. But we understand very clearly here that the work that's going to be done is for the purpose of God's decrees. My whole salvation is to glorify God and to bring Him what? Praise and worship. He's not going to save you, Brother Aaron, to let you sit back in the corner of your favorite hobby horse and not do the works that He's prepared you to do. If that is the case, you will be the most lifeless, miserable Christian in the entire covenant community of the church. And guess what? There's a lot of lifeless, miserable Christians. Whether I'll preach to the choir some weeks, I feel like that lifeless, miserable Christian. Why? Because I'm not doing the works that God I know has called me to do. Understanding then, we're taking a step toward something of the relationship of our works and the operation of God's Spirit within us and the purpose of His operation within us. 
let's now consider something that's written in the concluding thoughts of this letter of Hebrews. And I think by doing so, we're going to ascertain the true meaning of verse 10. Look at the concluding thoughts from Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. He's getting to the end of this sermonic letter and he's in a way giving them, you know, a benediction. And he says, Now the God of peace, he goes on to say, make you, he has a request, may the God of peace make you perfect. May the God of peace make you mature in every good work to do His will, and here it is, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight. Back to verse 10. God is just never to forget your work and your labor of love which you have showed toward His name in that you're ministering to the saints and you are doing at this moment. But we see clearly from Scripture, briefly at Ephesians chapter 2, more succinctly here, Hebrews 13, that our works, brothers and sisters, are literally God's works. There's not one good thing in me apart from the Spirit of God. I mean, anything I do, I call good. I'm still not good. You know the right response, right, to someone that says, hey, why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow? Kids, listen to this. If you ever hear this in your life, this is the proper response. You'll hear the phrase, why does God allow bad things happen to good people? And all you have to say is, He's only done it one time to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ was the only one that could be called good. Amen? There's not one good thing in us, brothers and sisters. It's the Spirit of God working in us for the purposes of His eternal degrees, degrees, the temperature is hot here, decrees in order to bring Him glory and to minister to one another in the church. Now it makes a little bit more sense here, doesn't it? Because when He says in Philippians 2.13, it is God which works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure it would be entirely unjust for God to save you, to convert you, to truly graft you into the vine and then let you die and rot off and fall off of the vine. It would be unjust. Not only would it be unjust, it would be rather deceitful, would it not? For God to begin a work in you and then perform some operations of the Spirit in you that manifests that you truly are one of His, and then cut you off. That's not just. That's deceitful. God is just to never forget your work, which is really His work, operating in you, and thereby when I see God operating in you, manifested in the fruits in your life, I can be convinced... The inspired writer doesn't say in verse 9 that he's God. But I can say with full persuasion, that brother or sister, I like to say, is a blood-bought one right there. I can just tell. The Word of God, the things of God exuberates out of their life. They love to serve other people. They have a certain sense of humility about themselves, etc., etc. Be consistent in those things. That's what's going on here in verse number 10. You see, they're working in love. It's an organic love. Brother Chris, they're not doing it because they think that somehow it's contributed to their salvation or their justification. 
No, they're doing it because God has really birthed within them a new man, a new woman. And therefore, they're working out in the labor of love to the glory of His name by, I love this text, ministering unto the saints. And while there is a lot of different work we do, the first and foremost work we ought to be attending to, brothers and sisters, is the one another's of Scripture. Amen? We touched on that already in verse number 9. That begins at home, overflows into the church, and then let it overflow in the community. Our works of good deeds to the glory of God and for the sake of His name ought to begin in our homes, our gospel homes, and then to one another in the church. Shame on us if we ever see any of us in the church who is hurting, who is broken, who is in need, and we don't reach out and be the hand of Christ, if you allow me the illustration, to pick up a shovel to, to help out in some way or another. So we see that the proper interpretation of verse number 10 is inward conversion, that he is certain of them, he's convinced of them, equals outward works. The objective external basis by which the inspired author is persuaded that many in this church are true converts in contrast to the false professors described in verses 1 through 8 is the observation of the supernatural work of God's Spirit at work through love in their lives as they humbly, lovingly, sacrificially minister unto one another in the local community called the church. And additionally... As this soul, this is a soul work of God's Spirit, which amazingly, does it ever baffle you that it includes us in the process, these broken vessels who have been healed by the, the gospel of Christ? Of course, God is not going to demonstrate Himself unjust to not complete it. That's why Philippians 1 6 says, Be confident of this thing. He that which has begun a good work in you will perform and mature it until the day of Jesus Christ. Of course, God's just in completing the work that He's started in you. Now, that doesn't mean that we're passive bystanders. Well, He's just going to do it, right? No, 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 no. That's why we move to verse 11 into our third heading, and we see in verse 11, that we're called in this love that God has birthed within our hearts and is working through the operation of the Holy Spirit, we're given the responsibility and the duty to pursue full assurance of this hope that we confess that we believe. Love pursues full assurance. After speaking the truth in love, and then acknowledging the work of God in their lives, motivated by their love toward God, in addition to expressing his optimistic estimation of many in the early church, now the inspired author urges them to a duty that we're all given called pursuing the full assurance of hope. He says in verse 11, we desire that every one of you, no one's left out here, every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end that you may not be slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
He says we desire. Again, you have connected with verse 9, a real love for these people. Now, we don't know who the we is here. We don't know if it's a little leprechaun in his pocket or, you know, but we don't know who the we is. It could just be an authorial, grammatical we, uh, or it could be him and some other of the apostles discussing, praying for this church. We desire, because we know it's so vital for you to make it unto the end, that you take seriously, hence the word diligence, you show the same diligence to your full assurance of the hope unto the end there's no exceptions there's no favoritism all of us are called to this pursuit of full assurance the word full there is just flowing over it can't contain anymore I would speculate to say that most of us are operating on a quarter of a tank of assurance if you're like me you're on half a tank most of the time. Sometimes I get up to a three quarters of a tank. But brothers and sisters, I confess to you that I need to pursue fuller assurance that the tank is so full. Have you ever done it, men? You grit your teeth when it happens. You're pumping your gas and you're not paying attention. It starts overflowing all over, all over the place. You're trying to grab the paper towels at the gas station, trying to wipe off the gas like the gas is really doing anything to the you know, epoxy clear finish in your car. But you're, you know, you're doing that. I need more of this assurance, this full assurance. What's connected in this puzzle of full assurance? By responding to the operations of God within my heart, which is rooted in the gospel of what He calls me to do in my life. What's He calling you to do? What is in His blueprint, we like to call the Bible, the basic instructions before leaving earth. What does He say in His blueprint for you, Nolan, a 15-year-old young man? Do, how, how can we grow in this aspect of practical theology, the thing that affects us the most in our lives? There is a sense where, like Stephen, we plead with God to fill us with the Spirit of God, to help us, and we get up day after day, and we simply put our heads down, head down, and we put our hands to the plow. And by His grace, we, see, we hope to be consistent and faithful. And in so much as we're consistent and faithful in the little things, and usually it's just the little things, you will be amazed at how it builds up your assurance. But because the weakness of our flesh, we're resistant in our prayer time, we're negligent in our prayer time. And thus, the byproduct is we're not receiving, we're not being built up in the Spirit in order to do those small things. Guys, I'm, smoking, I'm, I'm focusing on the small things that helps us in our assurance that, oh yes, I'm Christ's. Christ is mine. Christ is with me. Christ will help me. How? He gave me the strength after a long day at work where everybody was being a bunch of hooligans, me having the, the temptations of going back into that old man and talking like the old guys on the job site, brother, right? After a long day of fighting all of that, he's going to help me come in to this house and open up the Word of God and pray with my family, the small things. And then when I lay my head down at night, 
I know that God's power is real. It gave me the strength to do that because Fraser, in and of myself, I don't have the strength to do that. And you know what? If truth be told, x-ray pastor's life here, some days I don't have that power and I know I don't. And on those days, I feel defeated. I feel weak. So there is, in a sense, somehow connected to our full assurance, again, emphasize the word fool, flowing over, oppressing into God, asking, pleading for His Spirit, that we may grow and be made mature as Christians in order to do that which is pleasing unto Him. We in the Reformed community, I'm telling you, we don't like to emphasize our activity even when we say properly and theologically and biblically it's an operation of God, we don't like to connect it with our full full assurance. Any kind of doubt that creeps up, any kind of sense of defeat that creeps up, we want to treat it like it's some sort of possession of a demon. You cast that demon out. You speak it away. Don't you doubt the promises of God? No, perhaps, perhaps there's negligence in our lives at times, brothers and sisters, that will make us feel as though we only have a quarter a tank or a half a tank of assurance. That's not a bad thing. Because as we sung in the hymn, what do we do? We lean a little bit more on the repose of Christ more, don't we? God help me. Lord, I need you, etc., etc. And we get back on track. That's the Christian life. We say oftentimes the Christian life isn't a catapult from, you know, Dead standstill, straight over, up into the you know, heavenly realm. No, it's a lot of up, down, up, down, up, down, but it is a progressive moving forward unto the end of this age. It's interesting this text emphasizing this aspect of how we do this. He says, or I'm sorry, the obligation to do it. He says, show the same diligence, be not slothful. This is the same Greek phrase that he used back in verse eleven. Or, I'm sorry, that he's using here in verse 11, be, uh, show the same diligence, that carries with the idea of not being slothful. Uh, being, being dull of hearing is the same as not being slothful. In other words, uh, utilize the means of grace. There is a, a, an accompanied earnestness with the gift of salvation to want to grow in the things of the Lord. Give the same diligence. Be not slothful. Don't be dull of hearing. Receive the truth. All of these things work together for the full assurance that you're called to pursue unto the end. They will give you hope unto the end. I want to lastly look at, before we close, that this is done. He's going to now launch into an example of Abraham who demonstrated in his pursuit of full assurance much patience, didn't he, and much faith. That's what 13 to 20 is going to do. And he brings that up in verse 12. And I just want to draw our attention to the fact that in this pursuit of full assurance, in this pursuit of getting the puzzle of assurance all put together by the work of God working within us, you have to be patient. If I sat Naomi who's seven years old, I don't know, Naomi, maybe you would love this. If I put a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle in front of her, she's got to be paired to be patient, right? That's why we give our kids, what, the ten-piece puzzles, the big, giant ones. 
in the Christian life is that journey to pursue full assurance, constantly, perpetually relying on the Spirit of God through patience. Through patience. Maybe you've had a horrible week in your assurance. Well, there's probably some things connected to that. Maybe you have a very pessimistic outlook on your assurance moving forward from today forward. Well, there's probably some things connected with that. But if you're not in this Christian battle, this Christian walk, protected, secured, covered by the blood of Christ, for the ups and the downs, you will never make it to the end. You will never make it to the end. And you will demonstrate that you're one who tasted. You're the one who observed. You're the one who bought the t-shirt, but you never really joined the club. Closing thoughts, you have it in your sermon notes. Look with me, please. Of a proper understanding of the doctrine of full assurance. And it can be summarized in three points. Three points that come directly from our confession of faith. Biblical assurance is not a bare, conjectural, and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope. Yes, there is, we recognize, tension in some theology of Christianity, including the doctrine of assurance. But let us not walk out here thinking at all, making the mistake that it's just some sort of conjecture that's fallible. It's something that can't be really obtained. No, you see in your notes, it's an infallible assurance of faith. And it's founded on the blood and the righteousness of Christ that's revealed in the gospel. That's what it's founded upon. When you get the puzzle put together at the end of this age, and you may be blessed with getting it before the end of this age, before the end of your life, you'll see that's what it paints the picture of. The face of Christ, the blood of Christ, the righteousness that's only established in Christ. You'll see that. Secondly, this infallible assurance, it does not so belong to the essence of faith. It's not automatic. That's why we have to have the patience. And some of us struggle at times with it. But a true believer may wait a long time and struggle with many difficulties before he be made a partaker of it. And that's why there's the call to pursue it. If you don't possess it, get on your knees, look to Christ, ask the Lord to help you to grow in maturity in the things that He's calling you to do in the works of the labor of love and pursue full assurance. Thirdly, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation in diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted And why? As by their negligence in the preserving of it. If we isolate ourselves, we ignore some of the things we've talked about in today's message. We isolate ourselves from the covenant community of Christ, the means of grace. If we isolate ourselves from that, the preaching of the word, partaking of the Lord's Supper, communion with one another in the church, allowing ourselves to be sharpened as iron, we're neglecting our full assurance. Don't be surprised if you're struggling with assurance. But even though in those times where it may be diminished, because of the work of Christ in our hearts, because of the operations of the Spirit that is at work within us, we are never, it goes on to say, 
destitute of the seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and that love of the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, that this assurance may in due time, this is God's time, be patient, it may be revived, and by which in the meantime we will be preserved from utter despair. The closing thoughts here is simply this. I absolutely love how the Spirit of God has shown us a piece of the doctrine of full assurance in the text today. Because if I was going to do a topical message on biblical assurance, I would not... I, I, to be honest with you, Hebrews 6, <laughs> really? Hebrews 6, 9 through 12? But you really got to take 1 to 12 to understand this and really get it. Would not even be on my radar. I would not preach a, the, the, on the doctrine of assurance with this passage of Scripture. But do you not see... How even after one of the most sober warning passages of all the New Testament, it still is pointing us to the faithfulness of God, His operation, His work within us, and our duty, our calling, our blessed ability that He gives us to participate in this pursuit of making our calling and our election sure. Praise be to God. We didn't have to force systematic theology on the text. We didn't have to squeeze the text through a strainer to make it not say what it says. No, we allowed it to say what it says. And it wonderfully meets us where we're at in our Christian lives, doesn't it? He has saved me by His sovereign grace. He has done so that I may perform unto His glory good works. Now, by His operations within me, I have a responsibility to seek His face in prayer and be diligent to attend to those works, brother. And as I do so, organically, in my life, I will grow, I will pursue more and more in assurance. Until the day comes, perhaps when we're prepared to cross the Jordan River, our tanks will overflow. That all this time, not only was I saved by Christ, not only was I give him the power to live this Christian life through Christ, but I have all this time been preserved and kept by Christ. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, O God, we thank you so much that page after page after page of this blessed letter to the Hebrews, which Lord causes so many people dread and fear. God, we have seen as we have faithfully sought to be the Bereans You've called us to be, to understand the meaning of these texts. We have observed, Lord, Your blessed gospel, Your blessed faithfulness, O Lord, in every single page, even this page, dealing with our full assurance. God Almighty, we pray that You would help us. We know that we are weak. We know that we are easily, Lord, prone to wonder. We know even as those who have received Your blessed Spirit, that we grieve it at times in our lives. And the byproduct, Lord, is a lack of assurance. Lord, we confess these things before Your holy throne. We ask that You would forgive us of these things. 
We trust that you are faithful to your gospel. We, we cast all of our hope and our care that under the blood of Christ, that all of these sins, Lord, all of these sins of omission, even sins of commission, of doing things we know, uh, Lord, that we ought not to do. We, we trust, O oh God, as we approach the Lord's Supper, that these things are indeed by your faithfulness, as we will learn next week. In the remainder of this chapter, they are covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. And you are faithful, you are unchangeable to your promises, to your covenant obligations that you have committed yourselves to. Lord, we are humbled by it. We know that we are sinners who are ill-deserving of such favor, of such grace. And Lord, we ask you, we beseech you, that you would help us, Lord, grow within us a working of your spirit that compels us in our times of doubt, in our times of weariness, in our times of physical fatigue, in our times, O oh God, of temptation. Help us to, to follow our Lord. Help us, O oh Lord, to put our hands to that plow because we confess to you that we cannot do that which you have called us to do unless you help us. Lord, you are faithful. You are good. And we know now that you hear us, not of any good thing we have done, but because of what Christ has done in our stead. And as our high priest, as this letter has been demonstrating him to be, as our great mediator, we know that you hear us because of him. And we ask you, please come. Please, oh, give us power to live this life. Give us the strength, oh God, to be consistent and to be faithful to your word that we may be that salt and light to this lost, dark, dying world. We bless you. We trust that you would do this work, that you would be faithful to the work that you have begun within our lives unto the very end. Help us to look away from ourselves and more and more unto who you are and what you've promised to do. We bless you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.